0: Section One of the Sunnyside. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Vink. The Sunnyside by A. A. Milne, the complete dramatist. I take it that every able-bodied man and woman in this country wants to write a play since the news first got about that orlando what's-his-name made fifty thousand pounds out of the crimson sponge there has been a feeling that only through the medium of the stage can literary art find its true expression the successful playwright is indeed a man to be envied leaving aside for the moment the question of super-tax the prizes which fall to his lot are worth something of an effort he sees his name correctly spelt on Buses which go to such different spots as Hammersmith and West Norwood, and his name spelt incorrectly beneath the photograph of somebody else in the illustrated butler. He is a welcome figure at the garden parties of the elect, who are always ready to encourage him by accepting free seats for his play. Actor-managers nod to him, editors allow him to contribute without charge to a symposium on the price of golf balls. In short, he becomes a prominent figure in London society, and if he is not careful somebody will say so but even the unsuccessful dramatist has his moments i knew a young man who married someone else's mother and was allowed by her fourteen gardeners to amuse himself sometimes by rolling the tennis court it was an unsatisfying life and when rash acquaintances asked him what he did he used to say that he was for the bar now he says he is writing a play and we look around the spacious lawns and terraces and marvel at the run his last one must have had however i assume that you who read this are actually in need of the dibs your play must be not merely a good play but a successful one how shall this success be achieved frankly i cannot always say if you came to me and said i am on the stock exchange and the bulls are going down or up or sideways or whatever it might be there's no money to be made in the city nowadays and i want to write a play instead how shall i do it well i couldn't help you but suppose you said i'm fond of writing my people always say my letters home are good enough for punch i've got a little idea for a play about a man and a woman and another woman and but perhaps i better keep the plot a secret for the moment anyhow it's jolly exciting and i can do the dialogue all right the only thing is i don't know anything about technique and stagecraft and the three unities and that sort of rot can you give me a few hints suppose you spoke to me like this then i could do something for you my dear sir i should reply or madam you have come to the right shop lend me your ear for ten minutes and you shall learn just what stagecraft is and i should begin with a short homily on soliloquy if you ever read your shakespeare and no dramatist should despise the works of another dramatist he may always pick up something in them which may be useful for his next play if you ever read your shakespeare it is possible that you have come across this passage enter hamlet to be or not to be and so on in the same vein for some thirty lines these few remarks are called a soliloquy being addressed rather to the world in general than to any particular person on the stage now the object of this soliloquy is plain the dramatist wished us to know the thoughts which were passing through hamlet's mind and it was the only way which he could think of in which to do it of course a really good actor can often give a clue to the feelings of a character simply by facial expression there are ways of shifting the eyebrows distending the nostrils and exploring the lower molars with the tongue by which it is possible to denote respectively surprise defiance and doubt indeed irresolution being the keynote of hamlet's soliloquy a clever player could to some extent indicate the whole thirty lines by a silent working of the jaw but at the same time it would be idle to deny that he would miss the finer shades of the dramatist's meaning the insolence of office and the spurns to take only one line would tax the most elastic face so the soliloquy came into being we moderns however see the absurdity of it in real life no one thinks aloud or in an empty room the up-to-date dramatist must certainly avoid this hallmark of the old-fashioned play what then is to be done If it be granted first that the thoughts of a certain character should be known to the audience and secondly that soliloquy or the habit of thinking aloud is in opposition to modern stage technique how shall a soliloquy be avoided without damage to the play well there are more ways than one and now we come to what is meant by stagecraft stagecraft is the art of getting over these and other difficulties and if possible getting over them in a showy manner so that people will say how remarkable his stagecraft is for so young a writer when otherwise they mightn't have noticed it at all thus in this play we have been talking about an easy way of avoiding hamlet's soliloquy would be for ophelia to speak first o oh, what are you thinking about my lord ham i am wondering whether to be or not to be whether 'tis nobler in the mind to suffer and so on till you get to the end when ophelia might say ah yes or something non-committal of that sort this would be an easy way of doing it but it would not be the best way for the reason that it is too easy to call attention to itself what you want is to make it clear that you are conveying hamlet's thoughts to the audience in rather a clever manner that this can now be done we have to thank the well-known inventor of the telephone i forget his name the telephone has revolutionized the stage with its aid you can convey anything you like across the footlights in the old badly made play it was frequently necessary for one of the characters to take the audience into his confidence having disposed of my uncle's body he would say to the stout lady in the third row of the stalls i now have leisure in which to search for the will but first to lock the door lest i should be interrupted by harold whatnot." in the modern well-constructed play he simply rings up an imaginary confederate and tells him what he is going to do could anything be more natural Let us, to give an example of how this method works, goes back again to the play we have been discussing. Enter Hamlet. He walks quickly across the room to the telephone and takes up the receiver impatiently. Ham. Hello? Hello? I want double nine. Hello? I want double nine two. Hello? Double nine two three, Elsinore. Double not yes. Hello? Is that you, Horatio? Hamlet speaking i say i've been wondering about this business to be or not to be that is the question whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows what no hamlet speaking what aren't you horatio i want double nine two three sorry is that you exchange you gave me double five i want double nine hello is that you horatio hamlet speaking i've been wondering about this business to be or not to be that is what no i said to be or not to be no b be, b e yes that's right to be or not to be that is the question whether tis nobler and so on you see how effective it is but there is still another way of avoiding this soliloquy, which is sometimes used with good results It is to let hamlet if that happened to be the name of your character enter with a small dog pet falcon mongoose tame bear or whatever animal is most in keeping with the part and confide in this animal such sorrows hopes or secret history as the audience has got to know this is the additional advantage of putting the audience immediately in sympathy with your hero how sweet of him all the ladies say to tell his little bantam about it if you are not yet tired as i am of the prince of denmark i will explain for the last time how modern arthur might rewrite his speech enter hamlet with his favourite boarhound hamlet to boarhound to be or not to be ah fido fido that is the question eh old fido boy whether tis nobler in how now a rat rats fido fetch em in the mind to suffer the slings and down sir arrows put it down arrows of drop it fido Good old dog, and so on, which strikes me as rather sweet and natural. Let us now pass to the very important question of exits and entrances. To the young playwright, the difficulty of getting his characters onto the stage would seem much less than the difficulty of finding them something to say when they are there. He writes gaily and without hesitation. Enter Lord Arthur Fluffinose, and only then begins to bite the end of his penholder and gaze round his library for inspiration yet it is on that one word enter that his reputation for dramatic technique will hang why did lord arthur Fluffinose enter the obvious answer that the firm which is mentioned in the programme as supplying his trousers would be annoyed if he didn't is not enough nor is it enough to say that the whole plot of the piece hinges on him and that without him the drama would languish What the critic wants to know is why lord arthur chose that very moment to come in the very moment when lady larkspur was left alone in the oak-beamed hall of larkspur towers was it only a coincidence and if the young dramatist answers callously yes it simply shows that he has no feeling for the stage whatever in that case i didn't go on with this article however it will be more convenient to assume dear reader that in your play lord arthur had a good reason for coming in If that be so, he must explain it. It won't do to write like this. Enter Lord Arthur. Lady Larkspur starts suddenly and turns toward him. Lady Larkspur. Arthur, you here? He gives a nod of confirmation. She pauses a moment, and then with a sudden, passionate movement, flings herself into his arms. Take me away, Arthur. I can't bear this life any longer. Larkspur bit me again this morning, for the third time. I want to get away from it all. Swoon. The subsequent scene may be so pathetic that only a 100th night it is still bringing tears to the eyes of the firemen, but you must not expect it to be treated as a serious dramatist. You will see this for yourself if you consider the passage as it should properly have been written. Enter Lord Arthur Fluffinose. Lady Larkspur looks at him with amazement. Lady Larkspur, Arthur, what are you doing here? Lord Arthur, I caught the two three from town. It gets in at three thirty seven, and I walked over from the station. It's only a mile. At this point, he points to the grandfather clock in the corner, and the audience, following his eyes, sees that it is seven minutes to four, which appears delightfully natural. I came to tell Larkspur to sell bungos. They're going down. Lady Larkspur, folding her hands over her chest and gazing broodingly at the footlights. Larkspur, Lord Arthur, anxiously, what is it? Suddenly, has he been ill treating you again? lady larkspur flinging herself into his arms oh arthur arthur take me away and so on but it may well be that lord larkspur has an intrigue of his own with his secretary miss devereux and if their big scene is to take place on the stage too the hall has got to be cleared for them in some way your natural instinct will be to say excellent fluffy nose and lady larkspur r enter lord larkspur and miss devereux l this is very immature even if you are quite clear as to which side of the stage is l and which is r you must make the evolutions seem natural thus enter from the left miss devereux she stops in surprise at seeing lord arthur and holds out her hand miss d why lord arthur whatever lord a how do you do i've just run down to tell lord arx to miss d he's in the library at least he lord a taking out his watch ah then perhaps i'd better exit by door on left miss d to lady l have you seen the times about here there is a set of verses in the financial supplement which lord larkspur wanted to she vaguely wanders around the room enter lord larkspur by the door at the back why here you are i have just sent lord arthur into the library to lord l i went out to speak to the gardener about lady l ah then i'll go and tell arthur exit to library leaving miss devereaux and lord larkspur alone and there you are you will of course appreciate that the unfinished sentences not only save time but also make the manoeuvring very much more natural so far i have been writing as if you were already in the thick of your play but it may well be that the enormous difficulty of getting the first character on has been too much for you how you may be wondering are you to begin your masterpiece the answer to this will depend upon the length of the play for upon the length depends the hour at which the curtain rises. If yours is an 8.15 play, you may be sure that the stalls will not fill up till 8.30, and you should therefore let loose the lesser-paid members of the cast on the opening scene, keeping your 50-pounders in reserve. In an 8.45 play, the audience may be plunged into the drama at once, but this is much the more difficult thing to do, and for the beginner I should certainly recommend the 8.15 play, for which the recipe is simple as soon as the lights go down and while the bald stout gentleman is kicking our top hat out of his way treading heavily on our toes and wheezing sorry sorry as he struggles to his seat a buzz begins behind the curtain what the players are saying is not distinguishable but a merry girlish laugh rings out now and then followed by the short sardonic chuckle of an obvious man of the world then the curtain rises and it is apparent that we are assisting at an at home of considerable splendour most of the characters seem to be on the stage, and for once we do not ask how they got there. We presume they have all been invited, thus you have had no difficulty with your entrances. As the chatter dies down a chord struck on the piano, the Bishop of Sploshington, charming, quite one of my favourites, do play it again, relapses into silence for the rest of the evening. The Duchess of Southbridge to Lord Reggie. Oh, Reggie, what did you say? Lord Reggie, putting up his eyeglass, said I'd balay well, top-hole, what don't you now? lady evangeline to lady violet as they walk across the stage oh i must tell you what that funny mr danby said doesn't lady violet nonetheless trills with happy laughter prince bonichtine the well-known ambassador loudly to an unnamed gentleman what your country ought to do he finishes his remark in the lip language which the unnamed gentleman seems to understand at any rate he nods several times there is more girlish laughter more buzz and more deaf and dumb language then lord Tuppenny, well what about auction amid murmurs of you'll play field-marshal and auction archbishop the crowd drifts off leaving the hero and heroine alone in the middle of the stage and then you can begin but now i must give you a warning you will never be a dramatist until you have learned the technique of meals in spite of all you can do in the way of avoiding soliloquies and getting your characters on and off the stage in a dramatic manner a time will come when you realise sadly that your play is not a bit like life after all then is the time to introduce a meal on the stage a stage meal is popular because it proves to the audience that the actors even one called charles holtry or owen nares are real people just like you and me look at mr Boucher eating we say excitedly to each other in the pit having had a vague idea up till then that an actor lived like a god on praise and grease paint and his photograph in the papers another cup won't you says miss gladys cooper no thank you says mr gennis edie dash it it's exactly like what we do at home ourselves and when to clinch matters the dramatist makes mr gerard du light a real cigarette in the third act then he can flatter himself that he has indeed achieved the ambition of every stage-writer and brought the actual scent of the hay across the footlights but there is a technique to be acquired in this matter as in everything else within the theatre the great art of stage craftsmen, as I have already shown, is to seem natural rather than to be natural. Let your actors have tea, by all means, but see that it is a properly histrionic tea. This is how it should go. Hostess, how do you do? You'll have some tea, won't you? Rings bell. Guest. Thank you. Enter butler. Hostess. Tea, please, Matthews. Butler. Impassively. Yes, milady this is all he says during the play so he must try and get a little character into it in order that the era may remark mr thompson was excellent as matthews however this part is not over yet for he returns immediately followed by three footmen just as it happened when you last called on the duchess and sets out the tea hostess holding up the property lump of sugar in the tongs sugar Guest, luckily no thanks Hostess replaces Lump and inclines empty teapot over Tray for a moment, then hands him a cup painted brown inside, thus deceiving the gentleman with the telescope in the upper circle. Guest, touching his lips with the cup and then returning it to the saucer, well, I must be going. Re-enter Butler and three footmen, who remove the tea things. Hostess, to Guest, goodbye, so glad you could come. Exit Guest. His visit has been short, but it has been very thrilling while it lasted. Tea is the most usual meal on the stage for the reason that it is the least expensive, the property lump of sugar being dusted and used again on the next night. For a stage dinner, a certain amount of genuine sponge cake has to be made up to look like fish, chicken, or cutlet. In novels, the hero has often pushed his meals away untasted, but no stage hero would do anything so unnatural as this. The etiquette is to have two bites before the butler and the three footmen whisk away the plate two bites are made and the bread is crumbled with an air of great eagerness indeed one feels that in real life the guest would clutch hold of the footman and say half a mould, old chap i have it nearly finished but the actor is better schooled than this besides the thing is coming back again as chicken directly but it is the cigarette which chiefly has brought the modern drama to its present state of perfection. Without the stage cigarette, many an epigram would pass unnoticed, many an actor's hand would be much more noticeable, and the man who works the fireproof safety curtain would lose even the small amount of excitement which at present attaches to his job now although it is possible in the case of a few men at the top of the profession to leave the conduct of the cigarette entirely to the actor you will find it much more satisfactory to insert in the stage directions the particular movements with match and so forth that you wish carried out let us assume that lord arthur asks lord john what a cynic is the question of what a cynic is having arisen quite naturally in the course of the plot let us assume further that you wish lord john to reply a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing it has been said before but you may feel that it is quite time it was said again besides for all the audience knows lord john may simply be quoting now this answer even if it comes quite fresh to the stalls will lose much of its effect if it is said without the assistance of a cigarette try it for yourself lord john a cynic is a man who etc rotten now try again lord john a cynic is a man who etc lights cigarette no even that is not good once more lord john lighting cigarette a cynic is a man who etc better but it leaves too much to the actor well i see i must tell you lord john taking out gold cigarette case from his left-hand upper waistcoat pocket a cynic my dear arthur he opens case deliberately puts cigarette in mouth and extracts gold matchbox from right-hand trouser is a man who strikes match, knows the price of light cigarette, everything, and standing with match in one hand and cigarette in the other, the value of blows out the match, of inhales deeply from cigarette and blows out a cloud of smoke, nothing. It makes a different thing of it altogether. Of course, on the actual night, the match may refuse to strike, and Lord John may have to go on saying, a man who, a man who, a man who until the ignition occurs but even so it will still seem delightfully natural to the audience as if he were making up the epigram as he went along while as for blowing the match out he can hardly fail to do that in one the cigarette of course will be smoked at other moments than epigrammatic ones but on these other occasions you need not to deal so fully with it in the stage directions duke lighting cigarette i trust perkins that is good enough you do not want to say duke dropping ash on trousers it seems to be my love or duke removing stray piece of tobacco from tongue what ireland needs is still less duke throwing away end of cigarette show him in for this must remain one of the mysteries of the stage what happens to the stage surrogate when it has been puffed four times the stage tea of which a second cup is always refused the stage cutlet which was removed with the connivance of the guest after two mouthfuls the stage cigarette which nobody ever seems to want to smoke to the end thinking of these as they make their appearance in the houses of the titled one would say that the hospitality of the peerage was not a thing to make any great rush for but that would be to forget the butler and the three footmen even a duke cannot have everything and what his chef may lack in skill his butler more than makes up for in impassivity end of the complete dramatist